Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. The resurrection of Jesus is probably the most, actually not probably, it is the most important event in the history of mankind. If it is true, then Christianity is true, and any worldview or philosophy or religion that contradicts Christianity is false. If Jesus claimed to be God, and then he died and rose from the dead— We can take what he says about heaven and hell, about the inspiration of the Old Testament, about uh, the spiritual realm, how to obtain salvation. We can take all of these things seriously because being raised from the dead uh, proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. My guest today is Eric Chabot. He is um, the author of the book— the Resurrection of the Jewish Messiah, and we are going to be talking about that book today. Hello, Eric. Hey, Evan. How you doing today? I'm doing great. So tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, my name's a little odd. It, it sounds like it's, uh, it starts with a C. It sounds like it comes out as an S, right? Chabot. But, you know, you say it's like uh, Chabot. It's actually French. So anyway, I've got kind of a weird name, Chabot. Um, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, and I was raised in a Jewish community here. I was raised as kind of like a nominal Protestant kid, but I actually didn't come to faith in Jesus, like where I officially made a commitment to him till I was about 24 years old. And I heard the gospel through a Jewish uh, believer, a Jewish person who does believe in Jesus. Now, I'm not Jewish myself, but I was raised in a large Jewish community. And just the last 25 years, I just had a lot of experience in Jewish missions and Jewish culture. I have engaged a lot of Jewish believers in Jesus as well as unbelievers. And I direct two apologetic ministries, one at the Ohio State University here in Columbus, which has 64,000 students, and one at Columbus State Community College, which has about 30,000 students. So I've been doing apologetics and outreach uh, on those campuses for about 15 years. We've had a lot of speakers in like Mike Lacona, William Lane Craig, some debates, uh, some other events. So I've been involved in the apologetics community for quite some time now. And uh, I'm a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary out of Charlotte. And uh, so that's a little bit about myself. I blog at thinkapologetics.com. If you want to find out more about me, thinkapologetics.com. I live here in Columbus with my wife, Lucy, and two kids, Elise and Jack. Great. Great. So thinkapologetics.com, that's your blog. Right. So what what led you to write a book on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection? Well, like you said, apologetically, it's like the linchpin of apologetics. So I think we anyone that's in apologetics knows that that's like one of the core, if not the most important thing we tend to try to defend or provide good reasons or justification for. And given my background, Jewish missions and Jewish apologetics, I always saw kind of a need there to maybe integrate some of the Jewish aspects to the resurrection, some Jewish objections. I've seen a lot of books on Jewish objections to Jesus, but I never really saw anything that really honed in on the resurrection. There is a book out on Amazon called Jewish Scholarship on the Resurrection, which is pretty good. 
But I just wanted to write kind of a uh, a short version of it, like it's like 117 to 130 pages on some of the things that I've heard over the years, some of the things I've wrestled with, and just to kind of tie in the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Because as I say in the book, as you know, some people think today the way Judaism and Christianity are two separate religions, um, it wasn't that simple in the first century. I mean, when Jesus came, there was no Christianity. They were just a bunch of different Judaisms or Jewish sects at that time, and then Jesus comes along with his following and Paul and his, the apostles. And, you know, they're really part of the Jewish world at that time. And so that's where our faith was born. And that's where we want to understand the resurrection as a starting point, that kind of cultural background. So that's why I kind of got interested in this topic. I've been studying it for a number of years. And that's what led me to write this book. It, yeah, that that's one thing that I did notice about your book. Um you know, I wrote a book on the resurrection myself. Uh, My Redeemer Lives: Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And of course, you and of course, you've got like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, and Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona co-wrote one. But uh, I, th- this is like the first book where I saw it really tackled from a specifically Jewish perspective, not just uh, you know, not just the way that it's normally uh, tackled. And I, I think like what you said with your you know, the way that your your Jewish background and, you know, you're not Jewish, but, you know, the, the way, mm-hmm. you, um, you know, you have a real heart to reach out to the Jewish people. And that's and that's important because, you know, they are um, they were the people that God chose to bring us the the Messiah. And they gave us they're the, the people that produced the Old Testament scriptures. Right, right. Well, also, I just wanted to write the book for my fellow Christians to, you know, to kind of have like that perspective. I think it's kind of helpful, maybe fill some gaps of knowledge and things like that. Like you said, there's been a ton of apologetic books on the resurrection. There's some really good ones, but I felt that maybe there's some gaps there that maybe we could talk about in this book, you know, that maybe can help in, be integrated with some of the stuff we already know that we read about. So it's just a goal to kind of reach Jews and Christians with the book as well, to kind of integrate them together. Yeah. Uh, in the first chapter, you talk about how the Gospels uh, went decades uh, before being written, and that therefore the, tradi- the traditions about Jesus were taught and transmitted orally for a while. And many skeptics try to paint the story of the Gospels as embellished legends at worst and exaggerations at best on the basis that eyewitness testimony is unreliable and eyewitness testimony years after the fact is especially unreliable. So, and in the the first chapter of your book, you make a case that we can have confidence that the traditions about Jesus, as they're presented in the Gospels, uh, were preserved reliably before they could be written down. Can you unpack that case for our listeners? Sure. Well, you hear this objection a lot by Bart Ehrman. Um, he just did a recent unbelievable podcast or debate with Peter Williams, and they talked about that. That's one of Bart's main talking points, that the oral traditions are not— reliable, you know, and that's what leads to some of the discrepancies in the Gospels, and the Gospels are written decades after. But as I say in my book, you know, the starting point for understanding about Jesus isn't the Gospels, in my opinion, it's Paul. Paul is the earliest records we have, um, as far as looking at the earliest records. I mean, those are the earliest records we have, and we see that Paul has a oral, kind of, there's an oral tradition going on. You know, oral memory is 
tied in with the oral tradition. They're related where the people remember the events and then they're orally telling them. And then, of course, eventually they, they're written down. Now, we don't have access to the oral phase of the Jesus story. No one was there with tape recorders. You know, we don't have any notes because that's why it's oral, right? All we have is written sources today. But everything we know in, in the history of writing generally is told orally first, just like the way it's the way it is today, too, before it's written down. So Jesus was a rabbi, as far as all four Gospels tell us. And, uh, you know, he had an authority uh, going on there. He was an authoritative uh, spokesman. And, you know, the, the argument goes that maybe the oral tradition, the way it was passed on, the way it was taught was maybe kind of handled in a sloppy manner. Maybe it wasn't there was like it wasn't like a fixed tradition. Maybe it was just kind of handed down and maybe they changed it, you know, before it came out into its final form. And I think that we can be confident. I mean, there's been a lot of different work on oral tradition, a lot of different models out there. There's more than enough books to, to read on it. But I just think we're jumping the gun to assume that Jesus and his follow or Jesus as he passed these teachings on to his disciples that they wouldn't have an interest in preserving them uh, accurately. You know, he is their lord and I think that we've shown in oral tradition studies or oral memory studies that generally when one person is off on retelling the event that another person will come along and correct them. You know, the, there is a correction going on there and it's not like a telephone game thing and so I think that we can be reasonably confident what we know about Jewish oral culture, that they passed on things on a regular basis. They had to memorize large portions of the Old Testament. They were able to, to memorize a lot of stuff and remember a lot of stuff orally because it was an oral culture, not like today we're a text-based based culture. So I think we can be reasonably confident that stuff was passed on correctly. I think that Paul's the earliest uh, one we have, that he receives the information as he writes in his letters, some some information about Jesus, just so some basics that he died and rose from the dead, and, you know, some other historical elements. But they're not, they're not biographies. Paul's letters are written in different communities. But the point is that I think the earliest things we have are, are starting with that oral tradition, then it carries on to Paul, and then we go to the Gospels after that. So I, I'm not so worried if the Gospels are written down four to you know, 30, 40 years later. I mean, I can remember when my sister died in 1973. It's burned in my memory forever. I was four years old, but I can remember the day it happened because it was a high impact event. And I think with high impact events and memory, those things can be remembered accurately for many decades. So I just get a little weary of the, the hyper skepticism about memory and testimony, you know, and Jesus was not the average person. He wasn't just a prophet. He was the Lord to them. And I think we can be confident that they would want to get the story right. So that's the kind of angle I take, and I talk a little bit about, about oral transmission and some of the techniques Jesus used to help pass on that tradition accurately. He uses certain devices in his teaching and things that would allow them to memorize those things and understand them and remember them and record them. Yeah, I especially think about that that impact event. That is, that is especially, I think, helpful in contributing to the preservation of what happened. I mean, if if you, most of us can remember where we were and what we were doing, and you know the the what was going on the day that nine eleven happened. Right. If, if people were old enough to be around back then, I know that <laughs> there's some people. I mean, they're like 17, 18 years old now. That they, they weren't there. I was nine, so I I was I re, I remember it. Um. And I, we we all we can remember very excruciating details of that day, especially if you were in New York City seeing this happen, because you right. know planes don't fly into buildings every day. <laughs> and I just right. think if a man was walking on water, and if he was uh, healing people and raising dead people, and he was 
and, and especially if he died and he came back alive and appeared before you, that's not the kind of thing that you forget very easily. Exactly. That's exactly my point. That's a, <laughs> just like the Holocaust, you know, very high impact event. The Holocaust witnesses are interviewed some 60 years later and they remember it obviously just as if it was yesterday. So that's the way high impact events are. Yeah. It, um, in the next chapter, the chapter after you talk about oral tradition and its uh, reliability, you evaluate Paul's epistles and how they can attribute to the case for the resurrection. Tell our listeners the importance of Paul's writings. Well, like I just said, Paul's the earliest records we have for the resurrection of Jesus. It's not the Gospels. First um, Corinthians you know, can, as we've talked about many times in apologetics, we have that early creed there in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, where Paul talks about how he's received information that has been passed on to him. That's an oral tradition usage right there, like the in the Jewish culture, they passed on and transmitted things. And Paul talks about that creed there that he received um, at an earlier date. You know, he didn't say, remember, Paul is getting the information, first of all, very quickly after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Then he's writing it you know, some 15, 20, 25 years later, but the point is he received the information even earlier. Romans 1 has a passage there about Jesus's resurrection. Um, there, that that letter's dated 50 to 55 AD. Like I said, 1 Corinthians is dated probably 50 to 55 AD. You have a passage, um, some other passages on the resurrection in Paul's letters, but it just seems that if Paul is the earliest, uh, you know, if those are the earliest documents we have, we're talking about going all the way back very close to the event itself. And you know, like I said, he received that before he even wrote it. So, you know, I I believe personally he received the creed in First Corinthians 15, but when he went to Galatia to meet with Peter, I think there's good evidence for that. It's not, I wouldn't say it's 100% certain, but I would say that compared to the other options out there, like he got it Damascus or he got it um, in the book, like in the book of Acts, he talks about his conversion. I think that Galatia is probably the best place he uh, learned about the creed or learned about the information about Jesus. Um, now, some people say, you know, when you look at Galatians, like I say in my chapter, Galatians 1 says, you know, that he received the gospel from nobody else. He received it from the Lord. And it sounds like a personal revel revelation, right? It's the same word he used for received in 1 Corinthians 15. But I think what I see, what we see there is that, yes, he had that experience with Jesus uh, on the Damascus Road. He received that revelation from Jesus about the gospel. But he confirmed more of like the details of the gospel and some of the doctrinal issues with the other apostles. It'd be kind of like, say I had a personal experience with Jesus and I, you know, I went and told a bunch of people that are already Christians, say, hey, you know, uh, Jesus uh, revealed himself to me uh, in a vision or a dream, or I was praying, you know, and I came to know Christ. I mean, that that's not what personally happened to me. But the point is that let's say I go tell a bunch of Christians that. And then those five Christians confirmed to me, well, you know what? Actually, here's some more of the details about what happened here. Jesus actually appeared physically to all these people, and we were around, we saw it, and, you know, this really happened in Jerusalem, and this is what happened. So I think that Paul received that creedal information from the other apostles, and I think that's what he's writing about in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think Paul is obviously a very trustworthy source. I, I can't see any reason why he would lie about anything. I mean, so he is the earliest record—those are the earliest sources we have, and he does talk about the resurrection, several of the letters there. Yeah, I, I agree. I I also favor the um, uh, the I think it I think it was Jerusalem he went to, or he met with uh, Peter and James uh, in yeah. Galatians. Yeah, um, Galatia. Because yeah. Uh, and you know the two arguments that convince me are, I mean, number one, two specifically individuals 
that are named in the creed are the people that he's meeting with, James right. and Peter. Right. And then also the Greek word there, historiasi, if I pronounce that correctly, right. uh, it's like where, it's where we get our English word history. So there's, right. you know, they're not just shooting the breeze. They're talking about you know stuff that happened recently. Exactly. And as Bart, and as Bart Ehrman l- likes to say, you know, um, you're going to spend 15 days with, uh, with the main apostles, and you're not. It's it's impossible. It's it's just impossible to think that the resurrection wouldn't have come up. Um, and so I and this this is also I think you know even even if that's not where he got the creed, I think that that's very important. Um, the fact that uh, Paul met with Peter and James and the other disciples, because what that means is that we can trace the claims of the resurrection to the lips of the disciples themselves. I mean, we're getting. Uh, this is, I mean, you know, if you ignore the Gospels, if you want to throw the Gospels out, I mean, well, we still have Paul saying, I talked to the disciples and they said, yeah, Jesus appeared to them. So that, exactly. that rules out the whole legend embellishment thing. No, it wasn't a legend that grew up over time. I mean, they were saying it, the, the very people who were there were saying Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to us. Exactly. That's exactly right. And um, yeah, you just pretty much reemphasize everything I kind of said in the book about the Greek word for history. It means to become acquainted with, you know, so that's really what Paul, he went there with a very specific reason, you know, and so I, I we can't be, no, I mean, someone, well, you can't be sure hundred percent. Well, fine, but we can be reasonably certain that he didn't go there to hang out and hang out on a beach and, you know, talk about uh, the sun all day. So, <laughs> you know, can we, he they went talk, there with a purpose. They talked about so. the, they talked about the sun, S O N, not the right. sun, S U N. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Good one. Exactly. So, uh, um, how how do we know? You, I think you know. You talk about this in the book. Um, how do we know that the gospels bore the names that are frequently attributed to them? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, you, I think. No, no. Wait, is this? I it's in there. It's chap- a little. I do mention that a little bit. Chap- okay, I can't remember if this was in chapter three or chapter four. Uh, but anyway, like go, go into that a little bit. Give our audience your best case for the traditional authorship of the gospels. Well. The- we, the only way we—there's a couple of ways to argue that. Um, one would obviously, like I say in the book, the manuscript evidence, and you know, I, t- I quote uh, Brant Pitry, who's a, a Catholic scholar, but he's got an excellent book on the case for Jesus, if you can get it. It's one of the best books I've read on historical Jesus. But, he, you know, he talks about how the manuscripts are all we have. I mean, <laughs> we don't have anything else. And if you look for the second and third century manuscript evidence, they're all attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and uh, you know, just because—now, uh, when you look at— you know, you read the Gospels. Obviously, they don't they don't come with names on them, as we all know. Um, but you know, you know, Plutarch, like I say in the um, I say in the book, you know, the Plutarch doesn't have his name on a lot of his biographies. Of course, no one doubts those. But uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, biographies of, of the Plutarch wrote. But you know, the thing is that uh, we can. I think that there's enough evidence in Matthew that he was a you know the person who wrote it was a tax collector they knew a lot about money you see all those passages about money and you know those parables and things like that that the person was very knowledgeable about money we know Matthew traditionally is a tax collector so it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that Matthew was the guy who wrote that just his knowledge of the money and and, and all those issues and then Luke I mean I don't 
you know, as far as Luke, you know, he talks about how he received his sources at the beginning from somebody else. You know, he was he, he got them from other eyewitnesses. And I think it's important to understand when someone says the Gospels are not written by witnesses, I always say to them, you know, something Richard Bauckham talks about is that, do you mean direct eyewitness or indirect eyewitness? You know, the Greek word for eyewitness is aut- where we get the word autopsy from, and it means to be firsthand observer of the events. The eyewitness had to be alive when they wrote about that person. So I always say to people, you know, I don't consider Luke and Mark to be direct eyewitnesses. They're not direct. Mark received his information from Peter, most likely a lot of the information he writes about. And Luke receives his information from some of the the other eyewitnesses as he talks about in in Luke chapter one. So that doesn't mean they were direct eyewitnesses. It means they received their information from the direct eyewitnesses or what we call primary sources. Um, They were secondary sources, but they received their information from the primary sources. Now, John, I think there's a case that can be made that he was a direct eyewitness. And so the like I said, it just depends what you mean by eyewitness, you know? I mean, I think that we could say direct or indirect. There's nothing wrong with indirect. I mean, you know, if I, uh, if I'm a, if Paul, Paul's another case, somebody that, you know, he wrote as a uh, sec, uh, primary and secondary source. He did have that direct encounter with Jesus, but yet he also received a lot of his information from the other eyewitnesses. So it's like a chain of tradition that's going around there. So I think that the only thing is our manuscript evidence is all we have. And I think that there's, they're all attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, I don't know why anyone would write those names on there if they weren't weren't really attributed to them. So, you know, I, I don't really uh, think we need to make a um, a 100% certainty case they were written, you know, by those four guys. But I think there's good enough evidence they were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, you know, like I said, I that's the way I kind of argue it, with the direct and indirect eyewitness thing in the manuscript evidence. Yeah, one of the arguments I always bring up is, like, why, if they were going to make, like, slap names onto the— the gospel author, uh, why would, why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Like, right. okay, John makes sense because he was one of the inner three apostles, but Luke was not a direct eyewitness. Mark right. was, I mean, he only gets a few mentions in the book of Acts. And Matthew, as, uh, as a former tax collector, he would have been a very, you know, he, he wouldn't have. Uh, it, it would have been more likely that if these were forgeries, they would have chosen names like the apocryphal gospels, like Peter, Mary, right. um, you know, James, or maybe even Jesus himself. You know, just say, hey, Jesus writes an autobiography. You know, why choose right. these weird names? <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Good point. I agree 100 percent. So I just think they just, you know, they're making too big a deal out of the uh, eyewitness issue. And I mean, they're. A lot of times, you know, people are putting this uh, expectation on the four Gospels that they don't put on anything else. It's just over the top, you know. And so we're lucky we have four biographies of Jesus at all, you know, compared to antiquity, in antiquity. So anyway, I agree with you 100 percent. Yeah. And I, I don't even and I don't even make, um, you know, I take the uh, the minimal facts method that Gary Habermas uses. And so I don't even make a big deal of the authorship at all. I say, hey, you don't think Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fine. You can attribute it to Bob the janitor. You still have to answer the question of why, for example, uh, the these this early patriarchal society uh, that the gospel authors would have women in all of the accounts be witnesses to the empty tomb if that's not what happened and stuff like that. Right, right, right. I agree 100%. So Absolutely. Like, yeah, you know, hey, authorship, I'll give, it, I'll give that to you. you that doesn't... 
that doesn't excuse you from having to deal with the arguments. You know, Bart Ehrman also, you know, even though he doesn't agree with the authorship, you and I know this, the traditional authorship, he still agrees there's a lot of things in the Gospels you can know about Jesus, even if he doesn't agree with the authorship. So, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Now, do, do you think that um, this is... I'm, this is something that I've been pondering um, because, you, like you said, you know, if, they, if people gave the same amount of skepticism to, say, Plutarch or other ancient authors that are, you know, otherwise anonymous w without the manuscript attestation saying this guy wrote this book, um, that, you know, they wouldn't, you know, if they, if they treated them equally— there would be no problem with saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, do you think that, you know, I think the real uh, reason that perhaps skeptics are, like, they, they put more of a burden of proof on the uh, synoptic gospels is that if these are written by the people whose, whose names they bear, that makes the odds that they're, giving accurate historical information a lot higher because i mean like if it's if the apostle john wrote john i'm like you you've got somebody telling stuff you know he was actually there right well yeah i agree i mean i think that that's part of the problem and you know and i know not only they attack the uh, authorship they attack of course the um the credibility of the accounts i mean you know they might take the deity of jesus and say it was embellished or it was legend it grew over time you know and the time you hit john you kind of have that high view of jesus that deity issue and it becomes more like a higher uh, christology there you know so they attack it in all kinds of ways there's different angles the way they attack it but yeah i think that i think we both know probably by now that we've been doing this for a while and i you know i know you write a lot of blog or good blog articles on issues you've written some books do a lot of stuff and i've been around for a while now not that we know everything of course but the point is i think we both know that part of the problem is it's an issue of metaphysics i mean it just it has to do with the way you view reality and your worldview and i think a lot of people just struggle a lot of skeptics just struggle with the uh the issue of the uh the miraculous in the gospels the issues of jesus rising from the dead no matter how much historical evidence there is in geography and archaeology and all those things, they just simply will not budge an inch sometimes on their worldview. You know, it's the issue of the miraculous. And, you know, we've seen this over and over. And then we call them background beliefs or worldview. And so I just think that's that's more of a philosophical issue, you know, that needs to be tackled than a that historical issue. Of course, the philosophy impacts the history. But, you know, I think that's what we deal with a lot. I mean, I've had, had students, you know, at Ohio State, they'll say to me, well, you know, I love I think Jesus is an amazing ethical teacher. I think he does all kinds of cool things. He's a great moral example, all these things. But then when it comes to his deity or the miracles, they're like, but I just don't think that stuff happened. That's just that's just ridiculous. You know, and so they like to kind of chalk him up to the uh, the ethical teacher thing because they like his Sermon on the Mount, right? And then you get into his claims, his radical claims and his resurrection. People are just like, eh, I don't know if I can believe that, you know, and so that's just more of a worldview issue. And that's why it's harder for people to uh, accept the Gospels, at least some people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I And, and like you said about, like, you know, no amount of evidence will convince them. I... I like I was at a I was at a conference in 2017. I was attending Gary Habermas's lecture on the minimal facts, and he said that in scholarship today, they agree that Jesus died on the cross. It, you know, well, 75 percent agree that his tomb was empty. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but you know, higher numbers are they agree that he 
died and that he was seen by his disciples, Paul and James. And they also agree that there is no naturalistic explanation that can account for these facts. I mean, there's just swoon theory, hallucination theory, stolen body theory. They're all garbage. So they say, we don't know how to account for them, but we know Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's for sure. Right. They just stay agnostic on it. Right. (laughs) It's just, I'm like, well, if you, like, if the resurrection can account for all the data and over 2,000 years, no one has been able to come up with a natural explanation that could account. Why? I mean, why not? Why not just infer the best explanation? Right. Well, we all we both know the issue is that Jesus, it's like Anthony Flew said, if Jesus is who he is, then he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that defines everything. And most people are terrified of giving up their autonomy. So I was like that before I became a Christian. You know, I, I like doing my own thing and being my own God. So a lot of people are just, it's a, it's a fear issue, you know, and I know it. So um, they can say it's other things, but I just think it's easier to stay in agnosticism, say, I just don't know. It's easier to do my own thing. I just don't know what happened, you know? So they don't want to commit. <laughs> yeah, I think it was I quote I quoted an atheist uh historian in my book on the resurrection. I think it was E.P. Sanders uh, or, or he's more agnostic, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but he yeah. he said um he said something like and I'm just quoting from memory here. He said like uh it's certain that G- that Jesus's disciples and later Paul had experiences of the risen Christ. What gave rise to their experiences, I don't know. Right. I say that in my book, too. I have that quote. Yep, that's right. A lot of them will concede that the disciples had experiences, like you said, part of the minimal facts. They don't disagree they had experiences. What accounts for those experiences? Like I say in my book, was it apparitions? Was it an hallucination? Was it translation? What was it? You know, and then they or vi- they like the vision hypothesis, you know, the one that kind of says they had these subjective visions. That's what Ehrman points to. They love that one. Well, the disciples had some sort of visionary experience, but you know, and I know subjective visions are similar to hallucinations. It's just a product of your mind. It's not based in an external reality, but you know, they kind of like that one. So you're right. They will just stick in the naturalistic land no matter what. And a lot of that's just a worldview issue. Yeah, the, sometimes I like to uh, humorously, when I'm responding to the hallucination hypothesis, occasionally I will jokingly say, if 12 guys are on LSD, they might all hallucinate, but they're not all going to see the same dragon. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. I agree. I agree 100%. That's a good one. Absolutely. Um, anyway. Now, you in your book, you also talk about extra-biblical sources. Um what value do extra-biblical sources have in the case for the resurrection? And tell our listeners, what are those sources? Yeah, I didn't mention much in my book, I think, on extra-biblical sources about the resurrection. I think the extra-biblical sources are more about just Jesus in general. I don't think we have a lot of extra-biblical sources about the resurrection. Um, you know, Josephus, I mean, there is supposedly a passage maybe in Josephus that mentions the resurrection. Of course, Josephus, there is some— you know, Josephus is disputed, but there are some good, you know, there are some, uh, there's some Arabic manuscript, you know, that we, we believe does tell us some things about Jesus, you know, mentions his brother James, mentions John the Baptist, mentions Pilate. So, you know, we have some extra biblical evidence for Jesus, I think, but not a whole lot on his, um, his resurrection. Um, I think there's something in Justin Martyr's work I mentioned, you know, second century, you know, about something maybe about the, um, the empty tomb. Yeah, the, the body was stolen. Same going off the same story that you you know the Jews mentioned to Matthew that the disciples stole the body and that was kind of mentioned by uh, Justin Martyr 
in the second century that that was going on still, that, that tradition that the, the Jews said the disciples stole the body. But there's nothing, uh, as far as I know, in extra-biblical tradition says, like, the disciples saw Jesus, you know, or they saw him rise from the dead, and they believed he rose from the dead. And I think part of the problem is that people, when they expect that stuff, you know, if someone mentions that Jesus rose from the dead outside the Bible, they wouldn't, they'd be a believer. You know, they probably most likely would be a believer, and then you know and I know what the Lempun to is, say they're biased. You know, because they already believe the Gospels are biased anyway. Why do they? Why are they challenging you on extra-biblical evidence anyway? Because they don't think they can trust the New Testament authors, because they're biased, and we can't trust them. They're exaggerating, they're embellishing. So what do you got outside the Bible? Then you tell them, well, hey, I've got something on Jesus outside the Bible. He rose from dead. It's written by another believer. Like, no, we can't accept that. You know, we need a completely neutral, objective source, you know, and so— it's just a game that I find to be silly. Um, I, I think some of the extra biblical evidence does have value as far as the life of Jesus, but um, I still think the New Testament is the best uh, explanation, the best uh, evidence we have. And, you know, we shouldn't expect a ton written about Jesus. He didn't do anything that significant. He was a crucified Jew. You know, the Romans thought the Jews are superstitious. They're not going to write a lot about Jesus or anything about Jews. And so, you know, you say, well, he rose from the dead. Everyone should know about that. You know, it's not— you know, the, the time frame, the way thing, the information travels at that time is not the same way it is today. We don't have the Internet and Facebook and written text all over the place. So a lot of information traveled a lot slower, and it costs a lot of money to actually write things down in papyri. It was expensive. You know, just you don't just grab a piece of papyri and just write it down. I mean, hey, give me a piece of papyri. I'll just write it down. He rose from the dead. It's not that simple. So I think that sometimes we put a burden on the extra biblical evidence that's not needed, in my opinion. Yeah, I, the way I see it, extra biblical evidence can, like, like if you're like if you're trying to like if you're doing a minimal facts approach like I do, and you want to say, oh, what's the evidence that Jesus died on a cross? Well, you know, you got the Gospels and you got the New Testament, but oh, look, Josephus mentions it, and Tacitus mentions it, and Lucian of Samosata mentions it. So right. we got a so you could say we got a whole bunch of biblical sources, and we got a whole bunch of non-biblical sources, um, right? And they can just kind of like serve as corroborative evidence as Lee Strobel right. put in in his chapter in the case for Christ he he said these they don't yeah I mean we don't, they don't tell us a lot about the life of Jesus because they you know the authors weren't mainly interested in like doing a biography of Jesus like the gospels were but you know he he, he came up, and so Josephus was like, you know, there was this guy named Jesus. He had a group of followers, and, you know, the Sanhedrin, some of the principal men among us, amongst us took him to Pilate, and they crucified him. And Tacitus brought him up because, you know, it was, in, it was pertinent. He was talking about the, the burning of Rome and how Nero was sh shoving it off on the Christians. So that, you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I think it's more like cooperative uh, information. So I would agree. So it's there. It's helpful, but it's not the most important thing. The New Testament's kind of like our starting point. So, yeah. Um, now, uh, what are some of what are some of the specific Jewish objections to Jesus being the Messiah, and how would those of us who maybe want to witness to our Jewish neighbors, maybe we have um, Jewish friends, Jewish family members. Uh, how would we respond to those? And primarily, what obstacles do you see as the biggest challenges to Jews accepting Jesus? 
Well, scripturally, we know that I'm taking on the premise that you and I believe the Bible is authoritative right now when I say this, that, you know, it's inspired authoritative. So when it says in Romans 11 that Paul talks about there's a partial hardening on Israel right now until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, of course, you have to read Romans 9 to 11 in context. But the point is that Paul's saying that Israel has a partial hardening on them. So a lot of Jewish people are not going to believe in Jesus. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of a scriptural pattern right now, the way God set up the, uh, the, the sovereign plan of God, the way it's been set up. Now, having said that, the reason I called the book The Resurrection of the Jewish Messiah is because I think a lot of Christians are able to affirm Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior, but they're a little fuzzy on what it means to say Jesus is the Messiah, the Mashiach in Hebrew, or the uh, from the Greek word Christos, the Christ. And, you know, I think that we need to know what we mean when we say Jesus is the Messiah. We're affirming that he is the one who uh, came out of the line of David. He came from the seed of Abraham. He was written about in the Old Testament, and he's the one that helps Israel fulfill their calling. He's Israel's Messiah to the whole world. He's supposed to help Israel fulfill their calling. And so some of the things you have to understand about Jewish people is that uh, a lot of Jewish people today are just secular, and that means that they're not religious. They don't really think a ton about whether Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, a lot of my Jewish encounters with people on campus are with people who don't believe in God, and so a lot of times I have to make a case for the uh, existence of God, let alone get into whether Jesus is the Messiah. Now, for the ones that have objected um, to his Messiahship, a lot of times uh, groups like anti-missionary groups like Jews for Judaism, or they're called Outreach Judaism, they're kind of like anti-missionary groups, um, they really kind of use a lot of the same arguments that skeptics use against us, like the traditional Bart Ehrman arguments or Richard Carey or whatever, whoever, whatever skeptic you want to quote, they're all kind of saying the same thing. And so a lot of times they'll just appeal to those arguments, like the Gospels are written way later, we can't trust them, or Paul was a nut job, you know, he hallucinated on the Damascus Road, or, you know, he had some sort of conversion disorder, which, you know, I know Gary Habermas addresses that. And, um, but I would say, as far as the Messiah issue, like, like not affirming Jesus as the Messiah— most Jews don't have, as I say in the book, they don't look at the resurrection as like a messianic qualification. And what do I mean by that? When Christians go through the Old Testament and they try to use Old Testament prophecy to show that Jesus is fulfilling these things, you know, proving he's the Messiah, um, a lot of Jews don't really see those things as not only not fulfilled in Jesus, they don't see them as being that significant. So the resurrection isn't something they're looking at as the big thing. You're like, oh, when the Messiah comes— He's going to be resurrected. We'll all know he's the Jewish Messiah. He's the one. Well, they're looking more for a Messiah who um, kind of restores uh, peace to the world. He restores Israel. He brings peace to the nation of Israel. There's not all this bloodshed between the Jews and the Palestinians. There's peace there. And the Messiah is more of like a divine anointed figure. He's not necessarily God, but he is anointed by God to do something to bring that restoration to Israel and to the nations. It's very pragmatic. Um, so it's not really a supernatural messiah um, they're always looking for. And so they re they object on several grounds. They object that Jesus, first of all, died. They don't think that the messiah is supposed to die, let alone rise from the dead. Uh, and third, they just don't think Jesus did what the prophets spoke about, where this time of peace where the nations go up to Israel and they think Israel is a good nation. There's not all this bloodshed and conflict and uh, all these other things. So there are prophecies in there in the, in the Old Testament that we— Depending on your eschatology, some Christians think that those prophecies will be fulfilled 
at the return of Jesus, and other Christians take them allegorically or spiritually. They don't see any fulfillment of those. You know, Christians can debate that. But, you know, Jews see those as the big messianic criteria, that there's some pragmatic issues that haven't taken place yet, and they think Jesus' resurrection doesn't really do anything. You know, like, what does that do for humanity? Like, now, you and I can explain that if you want to ask me to talk about that. I can. But, you know, the point is they don't see it as really a big messianic qualification. Yeah, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well— like I say in the book, um, Jesus has to rise from the dead to fulfill many messianic qualifications. One, uh, when the when Moses talks about before he's going to die, that God tells him that something's coming to Israel where God will open their give them new eyes to see and ears to hear. He kind of gives them a foretaste of the new covenant. He says, "I'm going to circumcise Israel's hearts. You know, I'm going to do something differently. You have the written law right now. You have the written Torah, but one day I'm going to circumcise you in a way that you're going to have new eyes to see and new eyes to hear." And then if you carry on to Jeremiah 31, where it talks about the New Covenant in Ezekiel 36, where it's written really, uh, the New Covenant's promised to the northern southern kingdoms there, not even any Gentiles mentioned there, by the way, in Jeremiah 31. So to fulfill the New Covenant, God says, I'm going to write the law on your heart. I'm going to place my spirit within you. Well, that can only happen if Jesus rises from the dead, because we know he promises in John 14, 15, 16 that he'll send the Spirit or the Ruach to indwell us permanently. And that means the new covenant is a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus fulfills that covenant, new covenant, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, when he rises from the dead. Now, what happens to the Gentiles? Like you and me, we're not Jewish. How do we fit into it? Because the new covenant doesn't even mention us in the Old Testament. Well, Paul deals with that in Romans 11. He says we're grafted in. That's what uh, he talks about, that olive tree metaphor, and he says Gentiles are grafted in. And so the Abrahamic covenant was always designed to bring the king, the nations into the kingdom, but we get that uh, we get to partake of that through God grafting us in. And so Jesus also fulfills the uh, messianic qualifications of a prophet and a priest through the resurrection. He's a prophet like Moses. Moses did signs, right, to prove that he was a prophet. Jesus said, this is the ultimate sign that I'm a prophet like Moses, I'll rise from the dead. He talks about that in Matthew chapter 12. And then the priest like Melchizedek in the line in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has to be a priest forever, a priest that makes intercession for us forever. That's only possible if he rises from the dead. He can't just be like a priest in the tabernacle or the temple who just dies like a sinful priest. Jesus is the ultimate sinless priest, you know, that he's able to make intercession for us eternally. That's what the, uh, the book of Hebrews talks about. So Jesus fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king uh, through his resurrection, and he's also the reigning Davidic king. That means you have to have a uh, a king on the throne of David forever that Second Samuel promises in the Davidic covenant. And when Paul says in Romans 1, when Jesus rose from the dead, he fulfills that covenant because now he's reigning on the throne of David forever. He's an eternal king. So the resurrection is tied in with a lot of messianic qualifications. Just a lot of Jews just don't know about it. They don't see it because they're taught from day one not to believe in Jesus. They've never looked into it. And so the ones that look into it, like Michael Brown and other Jewish people who've come to faith, it's a simple case of them finally looking into it for themselves, not believing just what they've been told by the rabbis. They look in it, into it, and they find the truth. If they're seeking the truth, then most likely they'll find it. And so that's the way it is with everybody. You know, you have to be seeking truth. That's how I came to faith, and that's how most people come to faith. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. So basically, it's like, um, you know, for a lot, for most people, you know, they either have like these objections and they just don't understand how the resurrection ties into that. But, but what you're saying is that for others, 
It's just that they, they either have very powerful cultural blinders or they just haven't given it much thought. Right. That's right. That's absolutely right. They haven't really looked into it much. And, you know, I doing campus apologetics for 15 years, one thing I know about this world and Jewish people and anyone for that matter, we're living in the era of pragmatism. And that means that, you know, whatever they're going to believe, they're going to ask, what difference does it make in my life? You know, what practical difference is it going to mean to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? You know, and so the first question they're not necessarily asking is whether it's true. Does it correspond to reality? Did Jesus factually rise from the dead? They're asking, you know, what does this do for me, you know, as a person in my job and my family? And that's just kind of, that's the way American culture is, of course. That's the way government's built and education is. You get a job that works for you, makes a difference. You know, government bills get passed, hopefully, to make a difference. So, you know, a lot of times we have to show people and Jewish people that if it's true, it does make a difference. But the first question is if it's really true. I mean, you and I could be a Mormon, and you and I know people are really nice who are Mormons, and it may make a difference in their lives, but that doesn't mean it's true. Same thing with Islam, right? And so that's for the challenge that lays before us. Um, with all people, especially Jewish people. Okay, so be before we end the podcast, uh, tell our listeners again where they can find you and your material. Right, well, uh, the book that you reviewed, I appreciate that, Evan, you're reviewing it. It's on Amazon. Just look up The Resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. Um, you can get it there on Kindle or paperback, whatever you want. And then I have another book on there on God's existence I co-wrote with another apologist. It's a short book. You can find that there on Amazon. Just type in my name, Eric Chabot, C-H-A-B-O-T. And then my blog, like I said, is thinkapologetics.com. And you can find out more about me there. You can email me if you have questions. And uh, I've just got a lot of stuff online. A lot of, like you, Evan, I've got articles on the poached egg and cross-examined and some of those other apologetic blogs. Um, but uh, if you want to get involved in our ministries at Ohio State, or Columbus State, you can just email me. My email address is on my blog at thinkapologetics.com, or you want to know more about me, just go there. So plenty of information online. So anyway. Okay, well, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Be sure to pick up Eric Chabot's book. It is The Resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. You can get it on Amazon.com. And thank you, Cerebral Faith patrons, uh, Kevin Walker, Jordan Apodaca, Jordan Hampton, uh, Austin Long. I'm really going to have to write your names down so I, can, <laughs> so I don't have to recall them from memory. Uh, just uh, Thank you for your patronage and for supporting this ministry. Uh, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I will see you next week. God bless. <laughs>